<laughs> we're going to get through it. Um, and it's actually, this chapter break of chapter two, I don't know if you guys, what your Bibles do, but my Bible uh, has this big chapter two that looks like it's in the middle of a paragraph, because it is. I don't know who's in charge of making the chapter separations in the Bible, but I would take issue with this one. I would probably start the new chapter after chapter two, verse uh, five, but that's not how they did it. So what we're going to do is this paragraph between verse 24 of chapter 1 through chapter 2, 5 is kind of like one thought. It's one big idea, but there are so many gems in the middle of it all that we didn't want to just do it all in one sermon. So we're going to kind of do a part one, part two dance with this chunk of scripture. So I'm going to cover the first chunk this week, and then next week we're going to cover the second chunk. Um, so that's the game plan. So I'm going to read it, the text for today, which is through to the end of chapter 2, and then we'll pray and we'll dive in. So this is Colossians 1, 24. Now, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you. And to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works in me, within me. Let's pray. Lord, as we dive into this text, I pray that your words would be revealed to us. Your truth, your goodness, your reality would become more real for us. Thank you for inspiring Paul and Timothy to pen these words. And man, we're so grateful we get to study them together here now, today, as a family. We love you, Jesus. Thank you for your presence. Amen. So, what I kind of want to do is I want to look. Um, this chunk of scripture is kind of kind of sits in an interesting place in the letter. So the letter kind of starts off with a standard greeting, and then it goes into Paul's uh, kind of relationship to Colossae and the hope he has for Colossae, and then it, the church in Colossae, and then it kind of transitions to this beautiful Christ poem, which we talked about a few weeks ago being kind of like the mountaintop experience, the peak experience of the book, where we experience Jesus, we experience God, and then our lives are changed because of that experience. And where we are in the book this week and next week, this, this section of text, is Paul's response then to this mountaintop experience. It's Paul's response to who Christ is. So we're going to see Paul responding in his own life to the person and identity of Jesus. And then he turns in chapter 2, verse 6, where we'll be in a few more weeks. He says, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus as the Lord, so walk in him. So again, it's kind of like we're seeing Paul's response to the Christ poem saying, this is how I'm taking this on. And then he turns to the Colossians. And for the rest of the book, he's instructing them, this is how then you ought to live because of who Jesus is. Make sense? Okay, so let's look at this first section together. I want to read, I'm just going to go through it verse by verse and see what comes up. Um, that sounds like I did no preparation for this. I mean, who knows? You don't see what's on here. Yeah, I'm actually watching Netflix right now. You have no idea. 
now I rejoice, this is verse 24, now I rejoice in what I am suffering for you and fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. Okay, that wasn't confusing at all. Everyone good? Should we move on? <laughs> what I love about the Bible is, uh, I like to call them speed bumps. It's when you're reading through something, reading through a text, and you come across a few things and you just go, bump, hmm, interesting, bump. Hmm, interesting. And the temptation is when we're reading is just to keep on cruising. Just be like, oh, those are a couple of weird bumps. I don't really have a place for those bumps. I don't know what's going on. I'm just going to keep going. But I think it's those bumps in the text of scripture where we find so much life and so much joy. And, and, and honestly, I think it's in those bumps that my worldview is challenged. I think often I come to the scriptures thinking my lens is clear. I don't have any filter or lens that I'm looking at the text. I'm just looking at the text like purely analytically, the way it was written, like I get it. And the reality is we all have worldview and culture. And I mean, think about how much your, if you're married, your marriage reflects and mirrors and is shaped by the marriage of your parents. Or, or how, many, how many things that you bring into the table that are formed by family or friends or local culture or national culture. I mean, there's so many things that are, are, are lenses that we bring to the text. So often when I come across speed bumps in the Bible, where the Bible says something weird I don't get, I like to think that perhaps my Christian American worldview is being challenged a little bit by the Bible. And that's actually really exciting for me, because I want to be as close to the scriptures as possible, rather than just saying, hey, this is what I've always believed because I'm an American Christian, so this is what I'm going to believe as opposed to just looking at the text and saying, what's the text trying to say? So Paul says a couple weird things here. Let's dive in. Let's see what happens. He says the first weird thing. I rejoice in my sufferings, which is a weird thing in itself, but he says it all the time. We kind of get it now. We get it. He's rejoicing in the sufferings. He's not rejoicing because of the sufferings, but in suffering, he's rejoicing. Okay, we get that. He says, now I rejoice in my suffering for your sake. It's a little weird. Why or how, whoops, sorry. Why or how is Paul suffering for the sake of the Colossians? If this sentence read, I rejoice in my sufferings for Christ, I would go, that makes sense. You believe in Jesus. You won't renounce Jesus. You're in prison because of your belief in Jesus. You're suffering for Jesus. But he doesn't say that. He says, I rejoice in my suffering for your sake curious. So the question automatically arises in my mind, how is Paul suffering, suffering for the Colossian church? This church he's never even met, but he's saying my suffering is for you. Interesting. Here's another one. He says um, here in uh, 24, in my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body. That is the church. So now Paul is saying, I am filling up what was lacking in Christ's afflictions for the church. You go, wait a minute, what are you trying to say? I don't use the word lacking in Christ in the same sentence pretty much ever. <laughs> that makes me feel uneasy. What is Paul saying? I'm filling up in my flesh what was lacking in Christ's afflictions for his body, that is the church. What do we think? Anyone in the room want to take a stab at this? 
Yes. Mike said, Paul's, or Christ's afflictions were one time, Paul's afflictions are ongoing. Um, I think that points us in the right direction of this because we know a few things. Whenever we come to speed bumps in the Bible, the first thing we do is we measure those speed bumps based off of the rest of the text of Scripture. It's the first thing we do. We come across something we don't quite understand. First, we hold up the entirety of the rest of Scripture to that, and we say, how do these things compare? So a few things can be eliminated. So you cannot look at this verse and say Christ's affliction was lacking, therefore Christ's death and suffering on the cross was not sufficient for salvation. You can't get there. You can't get there. What Christ did and accomplished by dying on the cross for our sins makes it so that you and I have access forever if we accept him as our Lord, right? Okay, so it can't mean that. What then could it mean that Christ's suffering is lacking? And there's actually, there's, um, there's kind of only one answer that really makes sense to me. Um, and part of the, one of the passages that helps make, this sense, make sense of this for me is if you remember when we were going through Acts, Paul recounted his conversion story so many times where he said, I was on the road to Damascus, Jesus came, and does anyone remember Jesus' words to Saul? Anybody? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Question, was Saul persecuting Jesus? Yes, he was. But was he, who was he persecuting? His followers. He was persecuting the church. And Jesus comes up and says, why are you persecuting me? There is an identification between Jesus and the church that's going on. Even here in this verse in Colossians, it says, I'm feeling what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body. Christ's body, right? The afflictions for Christ's body are lacking. They're not yet complete. And I think what's interesting, there's, there, there's two possibilities that's really going on um, here. I, uh, well, that would explain how this suffering is for the Colossians. But I think what's going on is Christ's suffering will not be complete until he comes again. Here's what I mean by that. As followers of Jesus, as Christians, we are called into suffering. We're called to suffer well. And in our suffering, we're called to share in Christ's suffering. And our suffering, if we are the body of Christ, if my toe is in pain, do I feel that pain? Yes. So the lacking aspect of Christ's suffering is not in what it's accomplished. It's lacking in that it's not yet complete until the end of all days. That make sense? So Paul is saying, I am filling up. My physical body is experiencing suffering of the body of Christ right now. And the suffering is not yet complete. Some theologians think that perhaps Paul is thinking there's like a certain quotia of suffering that has to be accomplished before the end comes. So one theory about why Paul's suffering is for the Colossians is that he's like, listen, I'm suffering. I'm filling up the quotient here. You don't have to. That's one theory. I'm not a big fan of it, but really smart people believe it. So, I mean, that, that might work. Um, here's, here's what I think. And, and, and the rest of the passage kind of reveals this. I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. In my flesh, I'm filling up what's lacking in Christ's afflictions for you, for the body, for the church. Do you, church, want leaders 
who have gone through suffering and come out faithful on the other side? Or do we want leaders who have never gone through suffering? I want, I want to follow someone who has gone through suffering and come out faithful in the middle of suffering. And I think what we're seeing is we're seeing here, again, this is Paul's reflection on his life based off of who Jesus is. And what's happening is he's, he's taking even the worst things in his life, his suffering, and he's cataloging it mentally and emotionally in a place in his heart where it's a service for other people, where he's becoming the kind of leader that Colossae needs, even though he's never even been there. Isn't that interesting? Let's keep reading. It's verse 25. Well, actually, I'm going to start reading in 24 as kind of like a ramp, like an on-ramp to the freeway, and then we'll read 25 together. It says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. In my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body. That is the church. Verse 25, Of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. He's doing this in order to accomplish something. He's doing this because he's been given, some of your Bibles will say a commission, a stewardship, a high office. He's been given responsibility over the church to do what? Make the word of God fully known. That's his charge. He's looking back at the mountaintop experience of the Christ poem and he's reflecting on his own life and it makes it so that even the suffering he's experiencing is cataloged under doing something in service of the church to work and move in his general commission and mandate to make the word of God fully known. That's what he's doing. That's what he's wrestling with here. There's this great, um, uh, there's this great quote. Um, let me find it here. Um, this is from A.T. Lincoln. He says, the emphasis on Paul's suffering on behalf of the church, on the energy he expends in proclaiming Christ, and on the intensity of his pastoral concern demonstrates the excellence of his character as an apostle, and at the same time arouses the reader's admiration and sympathy. Paul is going ahead, and this is what leadership is, going ahead and saying, this is how the mountaintop is affecting me. And then he's going to spend the rest of the book challenging the Colossians and saying, if then, verse, uh, chapter 2, 6, therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus as the Lord, so walk in him. I love this picture of leadership. This picture of leadership that is so dedicated to loving and serving and being self-sacrificial and even experiencing suffering for others. Man, it's really beautiful. I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. Now, when he says to make the word of God fully known, he, what is it? It's, verse 26 explains, 26 through 27. He says, it's the mystery hidden for ages and generations now revealed to the saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery. It's most of, all of 26 and most of 27 are talking about what is this word of God? Well, it's a mystery. It's, you know, it's now it's, it's, it's a mystery for generations, but now recently it's been revealed to the saints and to the Gentiles. And then finally, at the end of verse 27, we hear what is this word of God that Paul is called to make known to the Colossians? What is this word? 
27, part B, he says, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. This is the mystery that's been hidden for ages. This is the word of God that he has been called and charged, given a commission, given stewardship over to make known to the church, Christ in you. Christ in you. And he has this little tag on the end, the hope of glory. What a beautiful, beautiful sentence. Man, and, and this is, I think this is a part of the grappling we have to do today. I think there are certain thoughts that exist somewhere in our head that take a long time to make the journey down to our hearts where we feel it. I think Christ in you, Christ in me, is one of those thoughts. Where even from a young age, we can identify, where does Jesus live? In me. He's in my heart. That's where Jesus is. Then we wake up, and it's a Monday, and we have to go to work. Boy, am I feeling Christ in me at that moment, right? Christ in me, the hope of glory. Christ in you, the hope of glory. It's an incredible thing to think about. And again, remember, this is, Christ in us is such a profound truth we are only able to live the way that we live because of Christ in us. We are able to throw off the chains of slavery of sin because of Christ in us. It's an incredible thing. And so he continues. Um, and uh, I'm going to start in verse 28, go through 29. Him we proclaim, Christ, we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Paul's saying we have this truth, Christ in you. It's a mystery for generations. We have this. I've been given a commission to be, make this known to everyone and we want everyone to know. We're teaching everybody we can about this. And why? It's to present you all mature in Christ. And I think if I had to sum up Colossians in a sentence, I should have written this down. I'm doing this on the fly. You're welcome, everyone. Um, if I had to do this in a sentence, it would be, Paul is trying to get everyone to see who Christ is in order to surrender their entire lives to him and pursue him in maturity. That's what Colossians is about. Who is Jesus? What does that mean for me? And how can I then grow in Christ in my life? Because all of us, all of us need to grow in maturity. We all have areas where we're lacking, areas we have not yet surrendered to Christ in us. Wouldn't this be amazing if 2021 was a year of all of us growing in maturity in Christ? Being able to do the self-reflection and diagnosis. Man. And genuinely, when I sin, I have this idea that I'm just not believing the gospel when I sin. When I gossip about someone, why, am I, why, do, why do we think I'm gossiping about someone? Anyone have ideas? 
Why, why do you think Daniel Golder would say something rude about someone behind their back to someone else? Any ideas? I need to self-promote. Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly it. I am doing it because it makes me feel better about who? Myself. I'm not believing the gospel that I'm already good enough. I'm not believing that being a son of God is good enough for me, that Christ in me is good enough. I have to talk negatively about someone else in order to feel good enough about myself. It's me not believing the gospel. That's me not grappling with this truth. Christ in you. And I think I can track that through to pretty much every sin in my life. I haven't found yet a sin in my life that this theory doesn't work for. I'm sure maybe one's there. But you know what I mean? Like, mature in Christ is this process where we grapple with this truth. And this is what Paul goes into for the rest of the letter after 2.6. It's, it's, I mean, it's incredible. You can see how he starts these sections about it. 2.6, therefore, as you receive Christ, Jesus is Lord, so walk in him. 3.1, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. Over and over again, we respond to who Jesus is in our own lives, in our own bodies. It's amazing. So the question arises then, where do we go from here? If this is the text, what are we supposed to do? Um, and I kind of, I kind of want to leave the conclusions of this whole passage for next week. Um, often when, I, when I'm prepping, what I want to do is I want us all to walk away with what does this text say and how does that apply to me in my life? And I kind of want to leave the conclusions for next week of this text. And so rather than focusing on the conclusion of this passage, what I want to do is pull out this phrase. Um, I, I want to pull out this phrase, Christ in you, the hope of glory. And I want to let that be our takeaway for the day. Is that okay? Okay. We'll, we'll, we'll conclude the passage next week with uh, 2, 1 through 5. Christ in you, the hope of glory. You know, for thousands of years... Prophets looked forward to the day when God would dwell in man. I want to read um, from uh, the prophet Joel. He says this, It shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. And even on the male and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit. Those are our days. These are the days that we live in. Christ in us. The hope of glory. When we say hope of glory, we talked about this maybe six months ago. I think we talked about this phrase pretty precisely, hope of glory. What is this hope that we're hoping in? What is this glory that we're hoping in? We're looking forward to the day when Christ comes in his glory, in his glory fully and redeems and renews everything. And do you know what a foretaste of that coming day is? Christ in you, Christ in me. That's a foretaste of what's to come. That we can wake up in the morning and we can speak to the living God. We try and just like sit with this, the weight of this thought for just a moment. Imagine you know nothing about Christianity. Nothing. I'm just telling you a story. I'm just telling you a story. Once upon a time, there was a being who created a universe. Stars, 
planets. And in this one galaxy, in a, in a small corner of this one galaxy, on a big rock, he created life and all kinds of life. And then some of the life he made to look like him, to bear his image. And that life grew, and there were some complications. And it got to the point, it got so bad that this being decided to take on flesh to become like these people, these, these beings on the ground. And then he died and suffered to be in relationship with them. Wow, that's a cool story. That being, now remember everything you know about Christianity. Everyone with me now? I was watching this infomercial years ago. This guy was like, forget everything you know, everything you know about blinders, you know, like on the window. And the next 30 minutes, I had no idea what he's talking about. I just couldn't track. <laughs> that Christ, that creator lives inside of you. I think that's worthy of at least 15 minutes of meditation sometime this week. The being who created you, who created everything you've seen and known, loves you, died for you, suffered for you, and now lives inside of you. That's such a large truth. 30-minute sermon doesn't do it justice. I hope this week we take the time to live as though we really believe in our hearts that Christ is inside of us, Christ in us. And this gives us hope. This gives us real hope because we have an assurance that one day all things will be made new, that our hope is not based on circumstance. Why? Because we already have Christ in us. We know what's coming. Church, may we cease putting our hope in anything that isn't Jesus. Circumstance will fail us. It doesn't matter. Our hope is not in who is or who is not being inaugurated this Wednesday. Our hope is not in a vaccine. Our hope is not, is not in life returning to normal. Our hope is not in a paycheck or a relationship. Our hope is not in a surgery or an outcome. Our hope is in Jesus and we know, we know, we know that he's coming again one day to make all things new because he's inside of us and he's whispering that to us and he's whispering to us about the beauty of today and how we have a job to do and we've been created to go and do good works because of the coming day. We get to live reflecting our lives through this filter that Jesus lives inside of us and is speaking to us every day. And that fills me with hope so that when the circumstances fail, when the relationship breaks down, do you know what remains true? Christ in you, the hope of glory. No one can take that away. No circumstance can take that away. Nothing can take that away. Christ in you, the hope of glory. And to that truth, we cling 
and we marinate on that truth. We meditate on that truth, and we sit in it for so long that it starts to change us. We start to grow in maturity because of that truth, and we hold on to it. We white-knuckle it because we don't want to lose our focus on that in a world where we're so easily distracted. And by the way, I'm well aware that life is a little harder right now than it has been for a while. I'm well aware. And I think it's in these places we celebrate that we hear the voice of God. You know, Hebrews uh, 1, 1 and 2 says this, Long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. That's like a mini version of, of Colossians 1. It's beautiful. I mean, I'm going to read it. In these last days, he's spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed to be the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. It's beautiful. He's speaking to us. God is speaking to you every day every day let's listen to him he's speaking to us every day you know um i sometimes i'll have people ask me so daniel do you think we're living in the last days right now are these the last days and i always answer yeah these are the last days the era we're living in is so unique to human history. We, we are in an era where God dwells in, in us. We've been in the last days since the resurrection of Jesus. And we're still in them. Some of people say, Daniel, do you see the signs of the times? I go, I do. They're there. You've correctly identified that we are in the last days for sure. Sometimes, though, what's missing in the conversation is that we've been in the last days for 2,000 years, but that's okay. And even here in, in Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, or verse 2, in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son. In these last days. I don't know how much longer the last days are going to go on for. They could go on for another 2,000 years. I have no idea. But it genuinely doesn't matter. Because I have Christ in me, and I have a job to do. And we, church, have Christ in us. That's the hope of glory. And we cling to that truth, and we live by that truth. Amen? Um, let's go ahead and get ready to take communion. If you're here in the